Well, one of the ways that we adore our Lord is by turning our attention to His Word. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the letter of 1 John as we continue our study through that passage, specifically 1 John chapter 2. And we'll be continuing our series of messages from, on verses 18 through 28. Before we get started, let's uh, just turn to our word, to our Lord and God in, in prayer. So please join me in prayer. Oh Lord God, we do want to exalt you as we have affirmed in our singing. Lord, um, you are great. You are high and lifted up. There is no one who is like you, Lord. There is nothing that we can teach you. All of your ways are unfathomable, Lord, in, in their details and in, in the complexity of all that you control so effortlessly. You know all things. You are the truly wise one, Lord God. And as the wise one, you have given us wise words. You have given us words that are inspired by you and sent forth by your Spirit, written by men. Under your guidance, Lord God, they have written what you wanted them to write. And we turn to those words today, not as words of men, not just words of history, but words from God, words directly from you. So please help us, Lord God, to understand them, help me to make them clear as you intend and as you desire. Lord, cause these words to have full impact in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. During the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, he, he knew his church was headed for some turbulent times after his departure from earth and ascension to be with the Father. His disciples should have picked up on that, for Jesus' public ministry years were, were somewhat turbulent, full of conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. But it would reach sort of a new level once Christ departed from this earth and ascended to be with the Father. But, but this wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Jesus foresaw that the devil would attempt to annihilate the church, but he promised that the gates of hell would not overpower it. Jesus foresaw that, that many antichrists would come, saying, I am the Christ. And he said, these antichrists would mislead many. But he instructed his disciples to see to it that no one misleads you. And he gave them his word as their guide and the Holy Spirit as their helper. Jesus foresaw that the enemies of the gospel would get violent and would lay their hands on the disciples to persecute them, falsely charge them, and imprison them. But he told them that this would lead to an opportunity for them to be witnesses for him. Jesus foresaw that the enemies of the gospel would even kill some of the disciples, but promised them peace in him in the midst of this persecution. He told them that they would have tribulation in, in the world, but that they were to take courage because he has overcome the world. Now these warnings of tribulation and difficulty that Jesus gave are echoed in other places of the New Testament. The scriptures warn us that evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
We are also warned that men will arise who are false apostles, deceitful workers, who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ and servants of righteousness. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us since Scripture highlights that even Satan masquerades himself and disguises himself as an angel of light. So what are we to do in light of these dangers? To use, uh, to borrow a, a question from another era, how then shall we live? The Apostle John provides us Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom to help us to know the answer to that question. And before we dig in and continue our message on this section, let's, let's again read this passage to refresh our memory of the truths that are written here. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 28. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Now, I have not written, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you... The anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. May the Lord bless his word in each one of our lives this morning. In light of the deception of our times and the lies that are masquerading as truth today, how can we be sure that we truly know God and how can we live to please him? This is one of the questions that was on the mind of John's readers. Remember, they had experienced a a severe departure. Uh, We do not know how many of of the members of this church departed. But we do know that that John tells us that there were many antichrists that that left. And he's saying here, they went out from us. So there's a connection there with the many. There were many of this congregation, whether it was a majority, we do not know. We don't know any numbers, but enough to call it uh, a significant number. And so that, that, that causes those who remain to begin to question their faith. And they were, they were questioning what, what they held to as truth, not only because many left, but because, as we'll see from the text today, the ones who did leave were leaving in such a way as to call the others who remained in question. 
And in fact, they were seeking to deceive them. So how can we be ashamed at Jesus' coming? I've been arguing that verse 28 really holds the key that holds all of this together. And as we're going to see next week, that the thread that holds us all together is that key word, abide. And so, just to give you a little preview of next week, we're going to look at the final principle that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit provides through the Apostle John on how to be unashamed at Jesus' coming, and that that is to abide in the Word, both written and incarnate. That's a little preview of next week. But, but what have we looked at previously, just to try to, to help you get the bigger picture? How are we to be unashamed at Jesus' coming? We looked at, from verse 18, that we are to be on guard against the influence of the Antichrist. From verse 19, that we are to persevere with the body of Christ. From verses 20 and 21 and 27, to rely upon the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that He would help us to discern the truth in God's Word. Today, we are going to look at the fourth principle for how to be unashamed that Jesus is coming. And that is this, to be on guard against those who are seeking to deceive you. And the fifth principle, which we're going to look at as well, Lord willing, and that is contained in verses 22 and 23. And that is that we are to be continuing to confess Jesus as the Christ. This morning, I, I want to list to you principle four. And these aren't, these aren't listed necessarily in order of priority. But I, I want to deal with verse 26 uh, in a way to help lead us into the discussion, verses 22 and 23. And the, the, the fourth principle to help us to be unashamed at Jesus' coming is this, to be on guard against those who are seeking to deceive you. Verse 26, John says this, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Now again, these principles are not um, unrelated. They are very much related and sometimes overlap. And by this this, uh, statement that John makes in verse 26, he is somewhat overlapping with his warning about the warning of the Antichrist who are coming. But here... He, he just doesn't say that they are coming and that they, are, in fact, are here. He says this very important truth. He adds to it by saying this, I, I, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Understand that there were teachers in that day who were seeking to deceive those who remained within the church. And understand that there are teachers today who say that they are pastors, who say that they are elders, who say that they are sound in the word, but really they are just seeking to deceive you. If that was true in John's age when there are still apostles on the scene, how much more true is that today when we do not have true apostles among us to call out the heretics? And we do have the word of God. But looking at the Word of God, verse 26, John declares one of his purposes for writing this letter. He says, these things I have written to you. Now some Bible scholars say these things can refer generically to the the whole letter. But logically, where this fits, he's he's not providing this at the end of his letter. He's providing it somewhat in the middle or near the middle. 
So I believe that these these things, in verse 26, is referring to this paragraph we have been working our way through ever so slowly. Beginning at verse 18 and really running up to the verse prior to that, verse 25. So if you want to know what these things John is specifically referring to, that's what he's pointing to. These things... I have written to you. Now, notice he says, I'm, I am writing. He does that other places. Here he uses, he uses a past tense, which is a, a, kind of a way the, of a writer putting himself in, in the place of the reader when he writes. So John is actively writing this as he's writing it, but he writes it almost from the future tense, looking into the future when, when uh, those readers would receive his letter and read it. And so he's, he's written it in a past tense. These things I have written to you. And he gives the specific reasons concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Beloved, there are men and women in that day and in our day today who are seeking to deceive you. They are trying to deceive you. And as I have said again, and I will repeat for our own edification and warning, false teachers don't come with warning labels. You put warning labels on a lot of different things that can harm us. Don't touch, it's hot. Or on the electrical box at home, watch, there's a a danger of of arc flashing because of the high voltage. There's all sorts of things we put danger labels on. And our world does not come with visible danger labels on false teachers. Now, the Lord gives us plenty of warnings in the scriptures. But what I'm saying is they don't self-identify as false teachers. They just don't. They say they're faithful to the scriptures. They say they love Jesus. They say they love God. They say they, they, that they're faithful to the word of God. And, and they might even read a scripture verse or two before they go on to teach you some other thing. It's usually some small variation that is difficult to detect. Some small variation of the truth. The word here, trying to deceive, is in the present participle tense. This is something that's, that is ongoing. And so some scholars have said that, that, that these false teachers were, had been successful in pulling some of the brethren away from the church. I do not think that was the case here because John doesn't give us any hint of that. He affirms to his readers that they are truly saved, they, 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 that they have the truth. And and as we have talked about, there is this whole issue of the perseverance of the saints which interweaves with this passage. But what he is trying to communicate to them is that there is an ever-present danger. There is a persistent danger. These false teachers are actively seeking to to seduce you, to lead you astray, and to deceive you. That's what John was telling his readers. And the Holy Spirit is communicating that to us today. There are false teachers today who seek to seduce you, to lead you astray, and to deceive you. Remember the Apostle Paul's words on, uh, to the elders at Ephesus when he met with them on his way to Jerusalem? He said, even from amongst your own number, men will arise who will seek to lead the brethren astray. That's the sad truth. Those men knew Paul. Paul had personally discipled them. But even amongst their own number, some were not faithful to the word. 
Some would not be faithful and would later be exposed as trying to lead the flock astray. That's that's the point that John is making. The situation hasn't changed today. You need to be on guard. You need to listen carefully. You need to be a discerning listener. Because I don't want you to believe me just for my sake. You should not believe the pastor just because he's the pastor. You should not believe the preacher just because he says so. Be a discerning listener who listens to what is said and compares it to the word of God. That is how you are not led astray. But there are so many today who do not do that. They do not pay attention to the word of God and they are so easily led astray. Through the Apostle John, the Holy Spirit was warning these genuine believers that that false teachers would be seeking to deceive them. You know, it, 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 is a, it is a big mistake for us to live with a peacetime mentality during our days on earth right now. We are not at peace. Now, our nation is at relative peace. And, and due to the sacrifice of men and women who put their lives on the line every single day, and some of them pay the ultimate price, we enjoy quite a bit of safety here. I mean, It's because they fight the fight over there that we don't have that fight here, by and large. But there's something far more important than just our physical lives. God wants us to be on guard for our spiritual lives. He wants us to be on guard against the subtle vices and distortions of the truth that false teachers will employ and do employ to deceive others. Now this warning about the false teachers who were seeking to, destroy, to, to deceive them is, is particularly noteworthy in this context. Why? And that is this, because John has already reminded his readers that they are children of God. We see that even in verse 18, children. It is the last hour. He's writing that not in a condescending way, but as, a, as an affirming way that these are the children of God to whom he is writing. So he affirms their spiritual status as children of God. And... As we looked at last week and the week before, verse 20, they have an anointing from the Holy One. So they have an anointing. And as verse 27 says, this anointing which you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. So, so he says from that standpoint, concerning the truths of Christ, you have... You have no need for anybody to teach you. You know the truth. You've heard the truth. You've adhered to the truth. You've professed the truth. Now just cling to it. You know it. So in the midst of that, and at the same time he affirms all those things, he's also saying, I'm writing to you because of those who are seeking to deceive you. Now now what we have already discussed about the perseverance of the, of the saints, it is true. A true believer will continue to believe unto the end and cannot fail to persevere unto the end, not because of our own strength, but because of the power of God protecting them and keeping them secure. We looked at that quite in detail a few weeks ago. That is true. What John is now saying is that 
You need to be on guard. Don't allow the perseverance of the saints to make you complacent into thinking that you are somehow immune to false teaching. That's what he's saying. Be on guard. Though you have the Holy Spirit, though you are a genuine child of God, for those that have believed in Christ, you are not immune from false teaching. You can be deceived. Now, not ultimately, but John isn't just concerned about his believers' salvation. He's concerned that they honor the Lord. He's concerned that they meet Jesus unashamed, whether that be on the day of their death or whether that be in the day the Lord returns, that they would meet him unashamed. And beloved, that is my desire for you as well, that you would not believe any false doctrine. As one commentator put put it, John does not underestimate the strength and subtlety of these heretics and wants his beloved readers to continually be on guard against the heretics' deceptive efforts. You know, it's often said by those that uh, are in the the realm of providing force protection for us, like our police officers and our soldiers, that, that living in our, the society that we do, we're often not aware, just not aware of our circumstances. We're not aware that people are seeking to hurt us, and by and large, they don't succeed because of these men and women who protect us and keep evil people at bay. But that aside, and, and with that in mind, understand that there are people seeking to deceive you. They are looking for an opportunity when your guard is down to attack you. In some cities, that's true physically. But again, our focus, I'm just using that as an illustration, our focus is the spiritual. Satan seeks a moment when you are unaware, when you forget your circumstances for a moment. I was just, uh, just recently saw an article of a, of a U.S. citizen who was in uh, Australia uh, for a number of weeks. And uh, police have captured a brutal attack upon him. So the, the, US, the American got out of this, uh, I don't know if it's a tram or a train. In any case, he got out. It was late at night, about 11 p.m. And someone came up uh, from behind him and just, just attacked him and uh, beat him so badly that he went unconscious. And then when he woke up and gained consciousness again, they beat him again until he was unconscious. And this went on for a while. And, and this, is, this is going on. And the, the gentleman is, is in serious condition, has had to have surgeries to stop the bleeding. It's, it's a graphic example, but that's what Satan wants to do to you. He wants to catch you unaware. Now, now thankfully... There, there, are these, there are these truths that we don't, we don't have to fear in the sense of protecting ourselves. We have the all-powerful one who knows all things. He is the one that is ultimately protecting us. But at the same time, Scripture, scripture tells us to put our confidence in God, but not let your guard down. That's, that's, a, that's a really constant theme throughout Scripture. We are to be on guard. One commentator notes the sad fact that the flourishing sects and cults of the late 20th century, and you could add the 21st century, have often gained impetus by deceiving and deluding uncertain Christians with their extravagant extravagant claims and clever theories. 
the remedy is not just truth as absolute, meaning here's the Bible, but it's also the experience of that truth inwardly. That is, adhere to the Bible. Understand what he's saying. And you can't adhere to the Bible unless you know the Bible and unless you're clinging to it. That is, you're on guard against those who are trying to deceive you. Now, beloved, if, if, think about this. If believers were immune from false teaching, it would be a wonderful thing. And one day we will be, because false teaching will be totally removed. But in the here and now, in this time in which God has placed us, we are not immune. If we were immune, just think about, think about, if we were immune, Paul would not have commanded Timothy to do this. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, to fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, and listen, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So some have rejected fighting, keeping the faith and a good conscience and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, that verse seems to be talking about primarily about people who appeared to be true believers but later were exposed as false teachers. But, but certainly you and I know people who, from as much as we can tell, seem to be genuine believers but have not kept a good conscience because of sin. They have fallen into the deception of the evil one. And as a result, their lives are a shipwreck. Their lives are a ruin. There's forgiveness in Christ for their sin, but the consequences of their sin are long and far-lasting, sometimes life-changing. If, if we were immune from false teaching, beloved, Peter would not have written what he did in 1 Peter 5.8. He says this, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Now, Peter was the one who also told us that we're protected by the power of God. You see, these are not competing truths. These are not contradictory truths. Our Assure, our safety is in the power of God. And at the same time, we are called to be on the alert. He says, be on the alert. And he gives this example. He says, for your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, in this modern era, we have this uh, kind of fascination with pets. And they're cute and lovable But sometimes that fascination causes people to do some really dumb things. They take that little kitty that they have in their house and project it upon these cats at the zoo. I don't know if you heard recently this one lady jumped over the fence or the glass wall or whatever to get a picture of this big cat thinking that this big cat is somehow like her little cat, this domesticated cat. Now, what do you think the big cat did? Attack. That's what big cats do. But people lose sight of that. Well, Well, that is the image the scripture uses to talk about the devil. The devil's no little kitty that you somehow can, like, contain or that you can command to stay put. Or you can get your hands around them or at least put them in a cage. The devil is compared to a big cat 
a lion who is seeking someone to devour. Now think about that spiritually. Yes, it's the power of God that protects you. Amen. But also realize that we have a responsibility to be on the alert. We, we just can't be walking around, spiritually speaking, with no purpose, nothing on guard, with, with having, having no idea what's, what's going on around us. The alertness that's called for is like the alertness of a patrol officer who knows the area and can detect when something is odd. He may not be able to exactly place what is wrong, but he can detect when something is odd, something is up. Beloved, an illustration of believers who were led into deception is given to us in Acts chapter 5. If you want to turn there, Acts chapter 5, um, at the beginning of of uh, that chapter. Undoubtedly, you've heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but I think this is an illustration for us of those who seemed to be genuine believers but were led astray, fell into error, and were not on guard. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. And with his wife's full knowledge, in bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? See, it's both attributed, this lie is attributed both to Satan and to um, Ananias. So understand what's going on here. They had a piece of property They sold it. They could have kept half of it and brought half and told the apostles, we sold our land and we're bringing half of it. They could have sold the land and brought 25% and said, here's 25% of what we sold. They would not have been sinning to do that. They were sinning because they wanted recognition for, in this case, giving Uh, a large gift when in fact they were not so generous, were they? They were holding a portion of it back while saying that that is what they actually received for that. He says there, you have not lied to men but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last and great fear came over all who heard of it. And the young men got up and covered him up and carried him out. They buried him. Now there lapsed an interval of about three hours and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of God, spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her alongside her husband. And a great fear came over the whole church and over those who heard these things. Keep in mind, Ananias and Sapphira, as far as we can tell, were believers. Now, that's an extreme example, I admit. And we are very thankful that God does not carry this out um, in our own lives. He could. He'd be just if he did. But he, he's often very gracious. But this is the very reason 
that, that Paul warns when we talk about 1 Corinthians 11, we talk about the taking of the communion, taking the Lord's Supper. And he says we are to confess, we are to confess our sins. He says because, because they were taking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, which means of really holding on uh, to sin. They, were, they knew about sin in their lives and they were not confessing it as sin. He says some of you are sick and some of you sleep. That sleeping is a, is a term referring to the death of a believer in the New Testament. So understand that, that believers are not immune from um, being deceived by Satan or by the, just the inclination, evil inclinations of our own heart. So what are we to do? We are to be on guard. To be on guard. You know, in the physical sense, those who are in the security realm, one of the primary things they teach you is just to be aware of your circumstances. Be aware of what's going on around you. So it's very difficult, for example, for a police officer to go sit in a restaurant with his back towards the front door. Right? He wants to see who's coming in. He wants to be aware of his circumstances. But that's one of the keys. Know the avenues of approach. Right? So... That, that, has, that has some spiritual truth to it. Know the avenues of approach. How is Satan going to attack you? Right? There's a lot of things we could say here, but just to highlight some that are really flowing into this text is don't trust your feelings. Your feelings are not a safe guide for what's true and what's not. Right? Downplaying the importance of understanding the scriptures is one avenue of approach. They just These false teachers just simply don't adhere to the truth. And we're going to look more about that next week in, the, in abiding in the truth and abiding in Jesus. And we could say that, that one, another avenue of approach is to misalign their teachings concerning Jesus Christ. That is, they tweak them slightly. They don't te- tweak them a lot or else you would immediately detect the lie. They just twist them just a little bit. But that little bit has some far-reaching consequences, as we're going to see in a moment. Now, beloved, do not fear the enemy, because God is with you, and he is the one who protects you. But do be on guard. Be committed to the truth. Be on the alert. That's what John says. If we want to be unashamed at the return of Jesus, we must be on guard against those who are seeking to deceive us. I want us to look at the fifth principle, and we may just get started into this and may not get all the way through it, but that's okay. The fifth principle, which helps us to be unashamed at the return of Jesus, is this, to keep confessing Jesus as the Christ. And we see this in verses 22 and 23. One of the ways, and I would say the primary way in which these false teachers, these deceivers, were seeking to lead Christians astray in, in in, to, the, to the congregation that John wrote was in the whole area of, of understanding Jesus as the Christ. That is, understanding that Jesus is God. Jesus is the focal point of his faith. We need to understand that while Satan will seek to, to deceive us in many different ways, the focus of his attack, the avenue of his approach, will be often attacking the person the doctrine, the life, the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focal point of our faith, the ground of our faith, the substance of our faith, and the glory of our faith. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
The fact that no one comes to the Father but through Jesus means that Jesus and the doctrines concerning Jesus are going to be the focal point of the deceivers. We just need to know that. Right? And it's true that if you know the Bible's teaching about, the, about who Christ is, that, and then go look at all of the cults and the sects, that is primarily, the, they have other deviations often, but that, that is the area where they will inevitably deviate. They will not teach the biblical teachings about Christ. So we need to understand that there are going to be people seeking to deceive us about Jesus. And we need to understand there will, people, that there will be people who choose to deny that Jesus is the Christ. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. Just read that as a reminder. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now we need to understand the word deny here means to refuse and reject. And the word deny, uh, each word at time it's used, the word denies there is given three times in these two verses. And each time it is, it is written as a present participle which tells, tells us that this denial is an ongoing persistent pattern. And that the people who are making this denial, that is their, one of their key characteristics. It's, it's one of their um, core principles that they are living by. So this denial is just not a one-time denial. This is not the denial of someone who doesn't know the truth. This, is, this denial is the consistent rejection, rejection of someone hardened to the truth. They've heard it, just like these... Un, these um, People, these antichrists who had left the church in John's era, they, they had been in the church. They had heard the gospel. They had heard the apostles' teaching, either directly or indirectly, about who Jesus Christ is. And they have chosen to deny it, to reject it, to refuse it. And, and what are they denying? Look with me at verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? They are denying that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what did John mean when he is using this term, the Christ? That Jesus is the Christ. Beloved, there have been many, many times, there are many uh, attempts to deny the historical Jesus, and they've all failed. There's just too much human history uh, about Jesus Christ. But what often happens is that people attack the deity of Jesus Christ. And again, there are many variations, but the one that John is specifically dealing with here is the attack on the deity of Jesus. Now, this term Christ, understand the term Christ, uh, as I mentioned before, is a title. It is the word that relates to the Old Testament word Messiah. And while the Jews were looking for a Messiah, they were not looking for a Messiah who was God himself. They were looking, in fact, as a nation to, for a Messiah who would rescue them from the Romans and from their human oppressors. But they were not looking for a, a spiritual Messiah. And they certainly weren't looking for a Messiah who was God himself. But that's what indeed is promised in the Old Testament. We won't take time to develop it. But I want you to see that, that when the scriptures use the term Christ, and specifically the Apostle John here, when he says that they're denying that Jesus is the Christ, he is specifically tying that term Christ to a claim of deity of Jesus. 
And, and I want to show you this uh, through some various passages. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is notable because it, it contains Peter's confession of Jesus Christ. And that is indeed what we're going to look at. Verse 13, is just going to pick it up there. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking the, his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they answered, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. And notice he just doesn't stop there. Notice the second phrase. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, think about there. Here, in this confession of Peter, which stems from the Father's prompting, the Father's work in Peter's life, Peter is connecting the idea of the Christ with the Son of the living God. Now, when we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we talk about the Son. I've often told you, you can't think biological. This isn't a biological relation. This is a theological relation. This is talking about the, about the reality of who God is. The Son is the second person of the Trinity, and He has been the Son from eternity. We do not, I do not hold to what's called incarnational sonship. I hold to eternal sonship that the second person of the Trinity has been eternally the second person of the Trinity. But, But the connection here is this. The term the Son of God is a claim to deity. We see this in John chapter 10. Turn with me there, please. John chapter 10, verse 22. John chapter 10, picking up at verse 22. At, that, at, the time, at the time the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe? The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but you, but, sorry, stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The Jews really understood Jesus' claim. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed equality with the Father. He was 
a servant to the Father's will voluntarily, but he was indeed God. He was equal. He, and that's the claim here. The Jews understood what he was saying when, when the, he, and, he and the Father are one. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And when he speaks about, the, about God as in terms like my Father and himself as the Son, Jesus under, was making this claim to deity and the Jews understood it. They understood that Jesus was making himself out to be God. So I, I, I took us here for this, for this reason. If we go back to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? What John is referring to specifically in the denial is not that Jesus, it's not a denial that Jesus is the Messiah per se, but it is a denial that Jesus is God, that he is divine. And, and notice with me, if you would, how John switches from using the term the Christ to the term the Son in this. Whoever, he says there, who is a liar but the one who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Christ? No, what does he say? The one who denies the Father and the Son. And he continues this line of thought. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. He's using an argument but we all understand that it is pretty hard to have a good relationship with a father if you hate his son. And a father and son, again, this, there's, a, there's a lot of variance on this, but the idea is that the son is an image of the father and a projection of the father and a, and a demonstration of the father's character. That's not always true in an earthly sense but it is true in a perfect sense in the Father and in the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is spoken of as the perfect image of God. The perfect image. And so it's appropriate that John used this term son in this circumstance. So, so that's what John is referring to. He's showing, these things show us that in 1 John 2, the term Christ is primarily focusing uh, our attention on the deity of Jesus Christ. So are those, there were those who were denying that Jesus is the Christ, and they, that means that they were denying that Jesus was God. They're denying that Jesus is God, and they're denying that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. Now, there are many deviations from the truth concerning the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Scholars have tried to identify the particular heresy that the Apostle John was writing against, but John doesn't give us many specific clues. As D. Edmund Hebert explains in his commentary, the, the precise identity of these heretics has been much discussed, but it is generally accepted that some form of Gnosticism is involved. It was the basic philosophical dualism of Gnosticism that motivated this denial. Docetic Gnosticism held that the divine Christ spirit was too holy to have been united with human nature. Serinthian Gnosticism held that the Spirit of Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism and empowered his ministry, but left him before his crucifixion. And it was only a man who died on the cross. John gives no further indication as to a positive content of their teaching. Unquote. So that's, that's to the extent that we know. They were attacking the deity of, of Jesus. And, and beloved, this is so important. Uh, we're going we're gonna to 
save some of this for next week, but, I, but catch what John is saying. This, this forms what, what some have called a, a test, um, a doctrinal test of whether you're really a believer or not. The one who denies the Father and the Son is the Antichrist. But John hits it right on the nail when he says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Anyone who denies the deity of Jesus Christ does not know God, does not have fellowship with God, no matter what they say. No matter what they say. This would include Jews who reject Jesus as the divine Son of God. This includes Muslims, a monotheistic faith, who say, they make claim that they have the Father, that they will know the Father, but yet reject the deity of Jesus Christ and rejects many other cults and sects today who reject the deity of Jesus Christ. You cannot know the Father. You cannot have fellowship with the Father if you reject the Son. And stated positively, the end of verse 23 Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Or to use Jesus' words, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He is the gate. He is the door. He is the pathway to the Father. So understand that, beloved, that we must continue confessing Jesus as the Christ. Next week, I'm going to further develop this. Uh, because I think it's helpful to look at the traditional ways in which the, the biblical teaching, the apostolic teaching um, on Jesus Christ has been attacked. So as we, as we uh, I won't go into depth on it, but I do want to cover it in brief so that we are on guard and alert to the subtle ways in which people distort the true teaching about Jesus Christ. So we'll look at that next week and then we'll go into the next section about uh, abiding in the Word, the Word written and the Word incarnate. Beloved, these scriptures help prepare us for meeting our Lord Jesus. Meeting our Lord Jesus and being unashamed at that meeting. We are to be on guard against the influence of the Antichrist, to persevere with the body of Christ, to rely upon the illumination of the Holy Spirit, to be on guard against those who are seeking to deceive you, and to keep confessing Jesus as the Christ, meaning that Jesus is God. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we want to thank you for your word. And I just ask, Lord, you cause these truths to, uh, to resonate in our minds. That you would cause these truths to percolate and cause us to meditate upon them. And Lord God, to, uh, to be obedient to them. Help us, Lord God to be on guard against those seeking to deceive us. Help us to keep confessing Jesus as the Christ, as, as God. Help us, Lord God, to rely upon the illumination of your Holy Spirit and determining truth from your word. And help us to persevere with the body of Christ and just to be on guard against these antichrists, which are many around us. Lord God, we are your people You are our Father, and we look to you to guide us and protect us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.